Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Uh, Jesus' command to hurry up and wait. You ever had to hurry up and wait? Yeah, yeah, but that's where the power is. You've got to set your agenda and your timetables aside when it comes to the Lord. Uh, because the Lord is transcendent. He's beyond time or space, and so he's not captive by that reality, and we are. So we're in the tension of dealing with a God who doesn't have a wristwatch and who is about a kairos time, which is a time that is full and pregnant uh, with the purposes of God when everything coalesces at the right time. So we are subject to waiting on the Lord and not in a passive way as if waiting means we don't do anything and we just kind of sit idly there. It's a waiting in a sense that's posturing myself. It's kind of like the busiest person in a restaurant is who? Say it. The waiter. Is that why they call them waiters? <laughs> right? But that's the kind of waiting that God is talking about, is that we are serving and posturing our hearts in such a way that when the opportune time comes and the Holy Ghost and everything hits at the right time, we're at the right place at the right time in the right position to experience the next thing that God wants to do in our lives. And so there's something about serving well. There's something about being faithful. That's why you got to be faithful over the little bit. Because while you're tending the little bit, it's positioning you for the more of God that he wants to do in your life. And so that's really what the book of Acts is really all about. It's, it's these simple people that have just postured themselves in such a way that they are positioning themselves to listen to what the Lord wants to do and to be led by the Holy Spirit in every facet of their life. And so, and so that's really this kind of idea of looking into the book of Acts and looking into the church and seeing, man, what made them so unique? You had a people that were below the poverty line, most of them. You had a people where 90% of the population within the church couldn't read or write they had no political power. They had no, nothing that any, the world would think of as any significance or a platform to, to make any impact or change. Yet, in 50 years, they evangelized the whole known world and turned the world upside down. So we have to ask, what was different about them than different about us? Well, nothing. The problem was is that they were willing to yield the Holy Spirit and to allow him to come in, and they knew if God didn't get it done, it wasn't going to get done. And that kind of radical dependence uh, lends itself to the purposes and plans of God and puts us in a position to experience the supernatural of God and to experience the mighty things of God. I believe that what we're reading in the book of Acts wasn't just relegated to that time. I think God has got the best in store for the last days of his church. And if God is showing us what the, what the rain looked like, the Holy Spirit coming down looking like in the inception of the church, I believe that God's wanting to do that again in the last days of his church. And, uh, and he's looking for a people that are going to make themselves available and willing to do it. Um, so that's really kind of the heart of, of that book of Acts church, of, of that they were really willing to lean in to the Lord and what, uh, what his purposes were uh, for them. Uh, so let's look at Acts chapter 1, and we're going to go through the first 11 verses of Acts. 
Um, the book of Acts was written by um, Luke, and so Luke um, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Acts is believed to be a companion to um, to Luke. So it's like Luke and Acts were kind of came together as one book or one scroll or one one writing. And so if you ever get the chance to do this, read the Gospel of Luke and then read it right into the book of Acts, and you're going to see the Holy Spirit emphasis. And you're going to see the different things. And so they were made to read seamlessly into one another. Now think about if you didn't have the book of Acts and you read the Gospels. And then after the Gospels of the life of Jesus, you just bounced right into Romans. You wouldn't really know what the church operated like when Jesus left. Right? So the book of Acts fills in this key component that shows us a North Star for every generation to look to and to aspire to, to be that kind of vibrant church on the earth. And uh, so when you look at Acts, it was, it's kind of this seamless thing. And so, so uh, Luke wrote that, and uh, he was, apparently he was um, financed to go on a journey to gather evidence and eyewitness accounts to put the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together by a man in verse 1 we'll read about um, by the name of Theophilus. And, uh, and so he mentions this kind of sponsor by name. Um, so that's kind of really uh, what, so let's just read it here, verse 1. I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what was the former account? former account was the gospel of Luke. And so Theophilus, empowered, sponsored, somehow was a part of um, Luke being able to gather evidence and write the book of Luke and then also uh, capture the history of the first century church in the book of Acts. And so Theophilus was kind of a common name in uh, when the Jews were dispersed, when, um, when Rome had come in and sacked Jerusalem and fragmented the Jewish people and had tore down and destroyed the temple, um, uh, that basically um, this was a common name. And so, um, so this name means God lover. So um, Luke is thanking the God lover for financing the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So some think this is a code word here, that it wasn't an actual person, that Luke is saying, these works are written for the God lovers. <laughs> so if you're leaning in, uh, you could be Theophilus. So uh, just look at your neighbor and say, nice to meet you, Theophilus. Oh, and then turn to them and say, that's funny. My name is Theophilus as well. <laughs> Who knew two Theophiluses would be in the same room at the same time? Verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now get that. By the orders, he had given orders by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? And you'll see the Holy Spirit emphasis throughout the book. Verse 3, to the same apostles also, after his suffering, 
he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. So do you see how he's setting this up? He's not setting this up to some pie-in-the-sky thing that might have happened or this mythology. He's thanking Theophilus, the God-lovers, and whom these letters are written to, or these works, these narratives. And as he's writing them, he's, he's also laying out this kind of foundation of that this isn't just uh, something that might have happened, that there was many convincing proofs that would prove that Jesus rose from the dead. And, uh, and so this is a big part of this, this writing that we have is that we're not reading about things that might have happened or could have happened. We're reading firsthand accounts of what actually happened to empower us to know that we have a leg to stand on when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about the gospel, he says over 500 men uh, saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. So it's one thing to fool one people, one person. It's one thing to fool a few, 12. It's another thing to have eyewitness accounts of people that were still alive, up to 500 of them saying, no, actually, we did see him. And so this is uh, really kind of laying down this foundation of, of wanting you to know that this historical narrative is written by someone who's done their due diligence and vetted out these eyewitnesses, and they're really leaning into the fact that, that this actually happened. So when you read the book of Acts, it can kind of feel from our experience maybe that, did this you know, does that happen? Was that limited for those days? Um, the author wants us to know that these convincing proofs that we're going to read about are available for us today and for a people that would um, want to seek the Lord and, and surrender their all to them. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem... But wait there for what my father promised, which you heard about from me. Um, there's, a, there's a gathering together there. Does anybody say that in verse 4 uh, while he was with them? Is there something that says something like gathering together? When it says like do not leave Jerusalem. Does anybody have that in their translation? Maybe not the... It was, it was, there's a Greek idiom there and makes it hard to, to translate, but what it literally means is that they took salt together. And that was an idiom in that day to where the Jews would, would consider the most important and most valuable thing you could do with somebody to seal that you had this moment together was when you sat down and you gathered together and you shared a meal with one another. And that was solidifying it. So... They can't really render that in English because if it said they took salt together, you know what the church would be doing? We'd be guzzling salt together and be making salt covenants with one another or something like that. But, but the idea here is, is that they sat down and ate with this resurrection Jesus. <laughs> so they're saying... This really happened. He really rose from the dead, and he was really physically in a body. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. That he was bodily, physically there, and that we touched him, we felt him, we heard him, and this is truth that we're willing to die for. And some of them uh, did. 
uh, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So something's going on here. Verse 6. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him. And here's it is. You ready? Uh, church always asking the wrong question. That's okay. <laughs> He's patient with us and kind. Verse 6. So when they gathered together, they began to ask him. Again, gathered together. This is really laying down this, this proof, this thing that they saw him, they were with him, they talked with him, they ate with him, they shared life with him. Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, this question was a natural one for them to ask because as soon as Jesus started preaching, he, his first sermon was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus talked more about the kingdom than he talked about anything else. So this would have been a very natural question for their Jewish expectations to think, well, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to redeem all things. And from Jerusalem, he's going to sit and rule and reign. And he's going to minister perfect justice from Mount Zion and be the greater David. And so all these thoughts were there. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a, they weren't dumb for asking that. But look at Jesus' response. Verse 7, he told them, you are not permitted <laughs> to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. So interesting. Jesus is telling them, I want you to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they want to know, when's the kingdom of God going to get set up? <laughs> And I feel like sometimes as the church, we can fall into these kind of realities, right? To where God's wanting to tell us one thing, but we're trying to say, well, that's cute, but God, what about this over here? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and with all the stuff, especially with the war going on in Israel and what's going on, everybody's wondering, man, is this it? How many of y'all had people ask that? Is this it? And I go, well, Acts 1-7. <laughs> You're not permitted to know the times and the seasons. But what I can tell you the command you need to lean into is you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost and you need to be on fire for God and you need to be a witness in these last days and be a signpost for the king that's coming. But the first thing people want to do, especially in the charismatic realm, is start putting dates and times on things. Let me tell you something. As soon as you set a date, I think God's up there like, I think I'm going to change it just because somebody said a date. So get this, who's telling them this? King Jesus. This is like God in the flesh, Jesus. But he's so content in trusting his father's timing that he doesn't even have to know. That he says, you know, Father, I couldn't know that because I'm all-knowing, but I'd rather submit to the fact of you know so that I could be surprised. Is that okay? Some of y'all's like, some of y'all just, your minds just exploded right there. Isn't he omniscient? Yeah, when he wants to be. 
See, there's no over overarching principle that controls God. So he can choose to not be when he wants to. And I think sometimes he puts us in a place of choice, blinds himself from the future to be surprised to see if we'll make the right decision or not. Might get stoned tonight. That's all. <laughs> With rocks. <laughs> With rocks. <laughs> Gotta remember where I'm at. It's a different day we live in, I know. So so maybe we think about this too. Maybe God couldn't answer that question in this sense. Because some of the Jewish thought of that day was, and Peter even says this, that living in such a way could hasten the day of the Lord. Because when all here, doesn't he come back when all here? So what would happen if people took that command serious? Could it hasten the day of the Lord? I don't know. Maybe the day is set and it's fixed and that's just what it is. But we're just kind of put in this position of this tension of the sovereignty of God and human free will. And that's just where it, it's left. And we can be content with that. Why? Because Jesus is our model and Jesus was content with it. So when Jesus says, hey, you guys are about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they didn't go, ooh, yeah. It's just like when I do an altar call, who wants to be filled with the Spirit? I don't want to look weird. I'm like, <laughs> everybody like leaves. I'm like, but if it comes to like, hey, who wants to know when the time when kingdom's going to set up? Everybody, oh! See, we'd rather have information than we'd have transformation. We'd rather be informed than we had have the responsibility of the life of God in us and on us to make the change that is necessary to bring about the kingdom of God to earth. So I think to answer the question of when the kingdom's going to come, well, when are you going to get baptized with the Spirit of God so that the kingdom of God can begin to flow out of you? Now here's the thesis statement for the book of Acts. Are you ready? Verse 8. This is like, just circle this as big as you can, and just this is the plan. So get this. Not for you to know, but the Father set that by his own authority. Then he says, but he won't let it go, will he? But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. So, so do you see, here's what happens. is It's like this dance with the Lord. And it's a give and it's a take. It's a push and a pull. So he says, hey, you guys ready? You're going to be baptized not many days from now. So there's the breadcrumb. They go, hmm. So then they push it back. Hey, when's the kingdom of God going to be manifest and restored to Israel? He goes, that's for the Lord to know. <laughs> but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, 
Judea, Samaria, and in the entire world, you will be able to accomplish this mission. So you see what's happening is the Lord begins to pull them into the mission by saying, you're going to have the spirit of God that's on me is going to be on you. And how I'm living, you're going to live. And then they first thing they do is push the responsibility back to him. Hey, when are you going to set up the kingdom? <laughs> and he's like, well, that's not for you to know. But you'll receive power <laughs> when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So there's this push and pull of responsibility. And this is where us as the church, if we want to be a Book of Acts church, is you have to take full ownership and responsibility for your relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you have to position yourself to be diligent, to go through whatever process it's going to take to get the healing you need, to get the deliverance you need, to get work through the issues you can. Why? Not so that you can just be free in and of yourself, because it's to kick out anything else other than Jesus so that Jesus can have more space on the inside of you and he can operate through you and with you and do amazing things through your life being witnesses now the word for witness in the Greek is martus it's where we get the word martyr and it's the same word used for martyr in the book of Revelation when it talks about those who had been killed by the beast in their stand for God in the last days and troublesome times. Except it translates it martyr there and not witness. So let's read that back into it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the farthest parts of the earth. Well, that has a different kick to it, doesn't it? So a witness is someone who is not just eyewitness to an event. It's someone that becomes the record of the life of Jesus on the earth, willing to go to the same lengths as Jesus did when he was on the earth. I know, that's cricket time right there. It's like, oh, come on now, get back to victory and all that other stuff. Well, that is the victory. The victory is this. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of testimony. Don't stop there. Everybody always stops there. What's the last one? See, we got too many two-thirds Christians around. That's the problem. The blood of the Lamb, the word of my testimony. You didn't even finish the verse. And they loved not their lives to the death. It's kind of like that scripture with Paul. It's the same thing. To know him and the power of his resurrection. And then they stop and everybody cheers. And I say, finish that on out. And to also be counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. We need to be three-thirds <laughs> Christians. If you're going to quote 1210, quote all of it. We love not our lives to the death. That death in the first century was an honor. To us, it's a plague. Death is a doorway, man. (laughs) And it's our great opportunity to give a final witness for him and his glory. 
And I tell people this and they get weird. And so let me finish the thought before you just throw me out. But I tell people, Jesus didn't die on a cross. He died in a garden. Because it was in the garden where he said, not my will, but your will be done. So you're waiting for the cross, but you got to make up your mind way in the garden if you're going to die for him. Thanks, Stace. I appreciate that. He'll clap for that. Um, so this is what it is to be a witness. This is what it would have been to just days earlier, your Savior is pinned to a Roman cross. That everybody in the religious system that would have gained you any power or recognition was a part of, and also not just them, but the governmental systems were a part of pinning them up there. And here you are, 12 guys wondering, how in the world are we going to win the entire world to a Savior that was pinned to a cross? Jesus says, Oh, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, (laughs) it's going to be the great game changer. It's the difference maker. To lean not on your own understanding and strength, but in the strength that only God can provide. To put yourself in a situation to where you're either going to fall on your face or a miracle is going to happen at every moment, at every speaking, at every prayer, at every witnessing, that you would be that dependent on Holy Ghost to provide the power and the words that you would need in that moment. And it's that kind of power that pushes people to the farthest parts of the earth and sees them take new ground for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So this is the promise. Nothing about the timing of a kingdom and when it will come, but in the promise that I'm going to send my Holy Spirit (laughs) and you're going to be my martyrs. Well, Jesus really knows how to thin the crowd. (laughs) Or maybe he knows how to draw the right crowd. Maybe. Yeah. Verse 9, after he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now watch this, are you ready? And as they were staring into the sky while he was going, suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? (laughs) The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back the same way you saw him go into heaven. So that's interesting because Jesus goes up and as they see him going to a cloud, they're tempted to stay. How long y'all give him? <laughs> I'm going to give him about five minutes. Oh, look at that. No, it was, a, it was a, probably a sundial. Whenever that shadow hits... <laughs> 
And then God has to reinforce it with two angels and go, <clears throat> stop looking up. Go position yourself to be filled with the Spirit and be my witnesses on the earth. So he's like, Jesus is serious about this transition of power from him to you. He's serious about the responsibility of what he did on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. And he's serious about handing it off into you. The worst thing we can do in this hour is be looking up into the sky. He's coming. Uh, any second now. Uh, any second. And then God's got to send some angels. No. Oh. Get going being witnesses. Position yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this follows the kind of the, the myths of ancient Greece and different times to where there was always the story of the hero going into heaven. And there was something about, it was called uh, the apotheosis or the becoming divine of figures. When I was in D.C. and I was in one of the buildings, I don't remember what it was, but, it, but George Washington was going into the clouds. And I was like, I didn't know Jesus had white hair. That was kind of wild, okay. They're like, well, that's Washington. I said, what's that? Well, that's the apotheosis of Washington. So what do you mean? He's like, well... That was just a way to honor people to show he's going into the clouds. <laughs> that to see a figure go into the clouds would mean they were being exalted to the highest level that a human could be exalted to. So Jesus is following a pattern here, but I don't think it's a Greek pattern that he's following. What I've found is, is that God normally comes up with something and then it gets perverted by the world and then they take the recognition for it and then they think Jesus copied it. But that's really not happened. Because if you think about it in Scripture, uh, who went up into the sky without dying? Elijah, right? right? Enoch, maybe Enoch. I don't know what's going on there. There's not much there. But we get more clues about Elijah, right? More than the story. And Elijah, when he knew he was going up, he was wanting to impart it to someone else before he left. Are you tracking? <laughs> so he found Elisha. And as he passes by, he throws his mantle on him, walks off. Elijah, Elisha, rather, is like, what in the world? Hey, man, I'm just plowing here with my oxen. Now, Elisha had 12 oxen, which meant he was balling, out of control. <laughs> he had it going on. An oxen would have been like a Ferrari or like a Lamborghini or something. And so when he throws the mantle of a prophet on him, he suddenly knows... My whole life is postured after hearing God's voice now. 
So in that moment, he kills all 12 of those oxen, builds a fire with the yokes that were on them, and then serves the whole community an all-you-could-eat steak dinner. I would say he responded correctly. <laughs> and so he follows him to see him go up. Why? Because if he sees him goes up, how big's the portion going to be? Double portion. But he's got to, what's the catch? He's got to see him. So he can't let him lose his, he can't let him out of his sight. Come on, I know you're tired and you worked hard. Get to moving, get to moving. So he can't let him out of his sight because if he goes up while he ain't watching, he's not going to get double of what he's got. So I just picture, because we're not told a time frame, that maybe Elijah was sleeping, and Elijah would have been like, <laughs> and then he opens his eyes, ah! <laughs> I'm not going up yet, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But he's got to see him go up to get double. So if he got double of what he got, <laughs> uh, yeah so, you, so you're seeing what's going on here so it's all about succession Elijah to Elisha and so he gives him the command as I'm going up you're going to be my martyrs my witnesses not just in Jerusalem because that was as big as their mind went, right? When are you going to restore Israel and kill the Gentiles? It's like, well, I'm trying to save them, and you're going to be my tool to do it. It's like, oh, man, gosh, Lord. Not the goyim. Oh, yeah. Dirty sheep coming down with all the filthy animals and all. Thank God the lizard was on there because I got in on that. You know what I'm saying? So there's this idea of seeing one go up and you're going to receive what's on their life. <laughs> so no wonder the angels were like, what are you doing looking up? Don't you know you just are about to receive what was on the life of the Son of God? And then you find out that the promise is to anyone and everyone and all who is afar. And Peter gets this Joel revelation and he's like, it's going to be to the sons, <laughs> to the daughters. Oh my gosh, women are going to prophesy. Yikes! Women are going to preach. The spirit's out of control. We know women can't preach. Come on, ladies. I'm pulling on y'all's chain over here. Of course. And just the, the beauty of that even the slave class 
was going to be filled with the Holy Ghost and be able to change nations. <laughs> it's like, really, we're complaining about that we don't have this and have that. I'm thinking, it is actually really unfair. We've got Holy Ghost. And we're still trying to position ourselves to get something else? I think the key is we're trying to create a safety net in which we don't have to become martyrs for him. And we really want to prop up something that keeps us comfortable than we do embrace something that would require all of us. And I don't know. So Jesus going up. So there's this picture here that his mantle is going to fall. And so then the reality becomes, who's going to grab it? So 1 Kings 19, how big was the portion that Elijah, Elijah, Elijah was going to get? Double portion? Okay, now check this out. Y'all ready to just get your mind blown here? Gospel of John chapter 3. And uh, I just want to submit to you that we are out of the double portion age. John 3, and we'll just start in verse 33 and read. It's actually 34 is the scripture, but I want to read one before and one behind. John 3, 33 and 35. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. This is talking of Jesus. He speaks God's words. For God gives him the Spirit without limit. Or gives him the Spirit without measure. Who says measure? Who says limit? So Jesus had God's spirit without limit. And then he went up and said, wait, I'm about to send the Holy Spirit on you so that you'll be my witnesses. So at what measure did Jesus send it to us? If he got it without measure, he wants to give it without measure and when we get a hold of this plan that God wants to do it not in our own strength and our talents and our abilities but just the humble heart that says God I'll tarry as long as it takes because if you don't send the Holy Spirit it ain't going to get done and the reason why we don't take that path is we believe in our hearts we can get it done without Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is just something to come in to help us have a little more exciting services because we're a little bit bored of the previous camp we left. Don't shout me down now. 
And so we turn the vital life of being a witness of God into, not life or death, but into something a little more entertaining. And we become Holy Spirit connoisseurs. And we swirl it around. Mmm. You smell the fragrance of that. Mmm. Yes. Holy Spirit is rich there. When the Lord wants to position us, let's just say, Lord, just give it without measure. <laughs> and every part of me that's clogging up that reality of getting Holy Spirit without measure, it's got to go. It's got to go. It's a turning outward to witness, but turning inward to do harsh evaluations of examinations to find out what is left there that you can't deal with, God, that I need to get out of the way so that you can fill me more. But what normally happens is, is we witness, you know, we, we kind of ease into the witness, but we're harsh with other people about how they're living. <laughs> and so that's why we're only filled that much, because we're filled according to the level that we're willing to be a witness, or to the level that we're willing to be a martus. So God would say, why don't you get violent with yourself and get loving with other people? Why don't you quit trying to control everything around you and start to posture your heart to deal with everything that's on the inside of you? Because at the end of the day, what can you control outside of yourself? Have you ever tried to control people? It don't work too good. I've tried it. Just don't work. So you spend your life frustrated by the outcomes of others instead of receiving peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Ghost, which is the kingdom of God. So as he went up and as he sent his spirit down, the Lord doesn't give double portions. He gives the spirit without measure. <laughs> he gives the spirit without measure. Let's stand to our feet. Lord, we just, we just ask you to come, God. I know this word was heavy, um, but it was necessary because... We've got to come up to the stature of King Jesus. And this is the only life we got, so we can't waste it. So God, we just lay our preconceived notions of what our life should be at your feet. And we posture ourselves and just say, send your Holy Spirit without measure, God. Send your Holy Spirit without measure. That as those apostles and disciples watched you go up, you were posturing them to receive the Spirit without measure. And 120 in an upper room 
evangelized 250 million in 50 years. <laughs> I think we got about 120 in here, God. And would you do it again? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.